Introducing Coco Golf's signature shoe, more than just a tennis shoe. It's a fusion of 90s inspired style and cutting edge performance technology with its sleek mid cut silhouette. It's designed to enhance speed and power on the court. The multi piece upper construction delivers high energy return for players of all levels. Whether you're a seasoned pro or just starting out, the Coco CG1 empowers you to dominate the game. Learn more and purchase the Coco CG1 at NewBalance.com. Welcome to Hey, Great Shot. This is the Great Shot Podcast, a Crack Rackets and Tennis Channel Podcast Network production. My name is Alex Gruskin. Let's get right to it. So many storylines right now floating throughout the tennis world, of course, all of us wondering how much tennis we're actually going to get to see during the rest of this 2020 season. That is a topic New York Times writer, host of the No Challenges Remaining podcast, Ben Rothenberg and I covered at length in our Tuesday, or was it a Monday GSP? I don't even remember at this point, where we talked about the biggest storylines remaining in this 2020 season. Of course, we looked a little bit forward to 2021 as well. One of some of the things we talked about the start date of the Australian Open. Will that be in January? Will the season be pushed back? Of course, one of the other things we talked about, one of the lingering storylines, one of the biggest stories certainly uh, throughout the professional tennis world, the drama going on on the ATP Player Council, the formation of the brand new Professional Tennis Players Association, Novak Djokovic, Vashik Pospisil, uh, forming an entity that they believe will better represent the interest of players uh, moving forward. Now, for now, there are only men on that PTPA. Of course, we've talked about that subject at length, and that is one of the big topics of today's conversation, that PTPA, their formation, and how that may have spurred the leaking of Andrea Gaudenzi, president of the ATP's strategic plan for the ATP moving forward, the way he plans on re, uh, renovating, or I suppose reinvigorating the business, the way he plans on consolidating tennis interests to help uh, make the marketing of the product more efficient, to make the pot everyone is, I suppose, taking from uh, that much bigger and there is no better person I could think of to bring in to discuss these topics than a returning champion of our Crack Rackets podcast. Of course, hopefully all of you by now are reading and know his work for Sports Business Journal, Sports Business Daily. Of course, I'm talking about Brett McCormick, who joins the show today to talk about that plan. Now, of course, he uh, was actually able to read Gaudenzi's 92 plan, outlining the strategic future for the ATP, and he wrote multiple pieces off of that plan. Again, you can find that actually with no paywall on the Sports Business Daily website. And that's really the subject of our conversation. We talk about the formation of the PTPA, why they decided the U.S. Open was the time to formally announce their beginning, despite having a few details still left to work out, to say the least. And then, of course, we go into the weeds on the ATP plan moving forward, what Gaudenzi did talk about, what they didn't talk about, what opening that may leave for the PTPA, and so much more. It's an outstanding conversation that I cannot wait for you listeners to hear. Of course, the reason we're able to to have these conversations on the Great Shot Podcast because of the support we get from our friends at DraftKings. And I know 
all of you listeners are already playing along. But in case you are a new listener here to this podcast, here is how you can get in on the action, take advantage of all the professional tennis going on across the globe, and your knowledge of it as well. You can do it with our friends at DraftKings. Here's how it works. You're going to go to DraftKings Sportsbook account and make a deposit. From there, DraftKings will match your first deposit at 20% up to $500. gets even better after that. You're going to make your first bet. And DraftKings will also match that with a risk-free first bet up to $500. Just go to dkng.co slash cracked open to play. That's dkng.co slash cracked open. If you or someone you know has a gambling problem, crisis counseling and referral services can be accessed by calling 1-800-GAMBLER in Illinois, New Jersey, West Virginia, or Pennsylvania, 1-800-9-WITH-IT-IN-INDIANA, 1-800-BETS-OFF in Iowa, or 1-800-522-4700 in Colorado. You must be 21 years or older and in a participating state to take advantage of this offer. Deposit bonus comes in DK dollars, which have no cash value and must be used on DraftKings. Eligibility restrictions apply. See DraftKings com slash slash sportsbook excuse me for more details now with that in mind let's get to my conversation with sports business journals brett mccormick Introducing Coco Golf's signature shoe, more than just a tennis shoe. It's a fusion of 90s-inspired style and cutting-edge performance technology with its sleek mid-cut silhouette. It's designed to enhance speed and power on the court. The multi-piece upper construction delivers high-energy return for players of all levels. Whether you're a seasoned pro or just starting out, the Coco CG1 empowers you to dominate the game. Learn more and purchase the Coco CG1 at NewBalance.com. Joining us on the podcast now, our returning champion here on our Crack Racket shows. Of course, there is no one more in tune to the daily goings-on of the business side of the professional tennis world than today's guest. You, of course, know him from his work for Sports Business Journal, for his Sports Business Daily issues, and, of course, a man who's not afraid to pimp out his work, as he told me before we started today's <laughs> show. Brett McCormick, welcome back to the show. It is great to hear your voice. How are you doing today? I'm good. I'm I'm blushing. You you can't see my face, but uh, you. I was that was off the record. <laughs> so as I learned throughout the U.S. Open, throughout many things, I got to get better at distinguishing what is on or off the record. But of course, it is great for us to have you here. It was great speaking of your smiling face to see that smiling face on one of my favorite YouTube shows, Gil Gross's Monday Match Analysis. And obviously the reason people are so excited to have you on the show. It's only a matter of time, by the way, until CNBC, you know, the morning sports center hit. I feel like you're a perfect 942 sports center hit. <laughs> on like Tuesdays moving forward. It's just going to be Brett McCormick's face. And what I was going to say is learning, seeing that smiling face with Gil, uh, it's all starting to make sense. It's all coming together while you're on the rise, Brett. Yeah, if you watch the uh, video that Gil recorded yesterday, see if you can find the point where my wife crawls into the room to get her <laughs> headphones. And I didn't know that it was my wife, and so uh, momentary chaos ensued. She had... Yeah. Uh, Previously, I was on a Zoom call with, I think, I want to say it was the CEO of the World Surf League, and I was on a Zoom call, and she thought I was watching a video, and so she was like, you know, casually dressed, as most of us are these days, working from home, (laughs) and she just walked up to me and was like, you know, 
rubbing my neck and I'm just talking to the CEO of this like sports organization and just looked at her like, oh, this is live. And she, was, <laughs> she was mortified. So that's why she crawled in yesterday. She had to get her headphones. So that was, uh, it's around yeah, like no. a 45 minute mark or something. It's funny. Well, I will say I already did see that moment, and I will say that's just good television. That's just yeah. good. That's exactly what fans are looking for, and of course, uh, yeah, hopefully she will join us a little bit today. Hopefully we are joined by your lovely young daughter as well, who's got to be nearing birthday number one. She's seven months uh, last week, so oh, getting Mazel there. Tov, yeah. of course, to you and your family, and Thank obviously, you. Uh, you know, it is great to hear you are doing well, and it is great to see, obviously, and read all of your work, because seriously, there are so many day-to-day updates, so many developments right now in not just, you know, the professional sporting world, but obviously professional tennis in general, one of the biggest stories we would probably be talking about more frequently if it wasn't such a chaotic time in pro tennis, the formation of the Professional Tennis Players Association the PTPA, another acronym to throw into the tennis mix. And obviously, you know, that was a significant moment during this past season. And I know you have had the chance to not only speak with uh, Andrea Gaudenzi about, you know, the ATP strategic plan moving forward, which I want to talk about, but you also had the chance to speak with Vashik Pospisil, who of course is one of the founding members of the PTPA. And so I want to start our conversation there because I think feel as though that may have been a big inflection point in professional tennis history. And I know there's a lot still to be figured out with the PTPA, but speaking with Vashik Pospisil, you know, speaking with uh, people who are were around this decision for the PTPA to formally announce their presence to, I suppose, officially, I don't know if they're officially chartered, but officially become an organization. What do you think led to the PTPA deciding now is the time? Yeah, <clears throat> that's the, I think, the question a lot of people had. And um, it's, so it's an issue with the 30-year-old structure of the ATP. There, you know, it's it's supposed to be a partnership. The tournaments and the players work together for the better of the ATP. And they just, uh, this group just doesn't feel like the partnership is working, which I think a lot of people would agree with. You know, I think uh, that in recent years, continually you've had the 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 two blocks the tournaments and the players vote with each other and then you kind of end up in gridlock you know three three and then the chairman has to break the tie which is you know politically suicidal for them you know which chris kermode would probably tell you a lot about that um puts the chairman in a very difficult position uh and and the the point was to never get there in the first place but it's become you know u.s congressy and uh, in, in how it's just everybody just votes for their side. So that is a legitimate issue that needs to be worked out. Uh, the timing of it, though, was curious. Uh, I talked to Vashik the, for the first time in was either, it was late January or February. I think it was after the Australian Open. And he was basically saying, you know, keep an eye on the U.S. Open. We're going to we're going to bring this up. And, um, you know, I forgot all about that because of everything that <laughs> happened, you know, in the, in the next month and then the month since. Um, but, you know, the, the timing of it was, was off in my opinion. And, and I'll say too, I'm not advocating for either side and Vashik is a really nice person. And I, I always enjoy talking to him. Um, but I, I just think the timing was off because it, it just came off poorly for the players. Um, you know, the, the tennis had 
really been hammered this year. I wrote something yesterday that uh, of the 59 tournaments on the WTA tour, you know, counting the slams, uh, 45 have been either canceled or postponed this year. Um, and so that's, you know, that's significant. Uh, mm-hmm. ATP would be probably a little less because they've been able to add some tournaments, you know, on, on one year sanctions, but uh, the sport has been hammered this year. And so to create, you know, to announce this group um, at the U S open, which, you know, as we're getting further away from it, we're realizing more and more how much of an accomplishment that was, uh, you know, it was sort of like a celebration of, okay, tennis, tennis made it through this and is back in some sort of way. Mm-hmm. And to announce the existence of a group that at the moment, really it's only platform is that it wants to increase uh, pay for players. Um, it, it's main platform. There's a few other issues they have, but you know, any player group is going to be in tennis is going to be worried about pay. Uh, just, mm-hmm. I, I, I think rub people the wrong way. And then they didn't have the women on board yet, uh, which also in this day and age is not a good look. Uh, that was, you know, kind of ding their credibility right there, even though they probably could have had the women on their side. I think there's definitely WTA players that have some of the same issues with uh, their tour, which is pretty similarly set up. Um, and uh, the fact that they, you know, I talked to him in February and they really had nothing put together so players signed a document that said they were interested to learn more they essentially signed up for like an email list you know like if, if you want to be kept up to date on what's going on um and so yeah I, you know i don't know what he was doing all summer and i'm not i'm not uh saying this was all he should have been doing i know he was you know doing the tennis united show and things like that which um it's kind of a uh ironic um, in hindsight, but, um, (laughs) you know, I just thought there would have been more, more, it would have been more put together. And his explanation for that was that, you know, it kind of came together quickly at the open, you know, the, they were peeved by what happened, uh, with the, uh, testing situation, you know, early in the open when some, some players had different experiences, you know, as far as quarantining and things like that, that seemed to bring, bring things to a head, but, you know, and, and their thought was why wait and i mean my response to that would be what i said at the beginning you know the timing is just not ideal for a, a power move by the players like their issue really like where they can make the money is the slams and so you would think that maybe they could work with the tour to confront the slams but you know, like the slams are, I mean, Wimbledon wasn't even held this year. French mm-hmm. open is, you know, struggled to have a tournament. U S open was played without fans, had an 80% revenue drop, although they were able to maintain most of the prize money, which right there again tells me that the slams are where you make the money. Um, you know, that it, I just don't think you can assert yourself right now and say, you know, we're not playing a tournament because we want more money, especially when, lower ranked members of your group that you that you need for critical mass probably are not in the position to sit out tournaments you know they did they they didn't play for over five months so i just was really confused by that in hindsight you know really like soaking all of it up and, and and thinking all those things through it just um you know they mentioned they had a law firm on their side helping them out but they really needed a pr firm honestly i mean mm-hmm. it, it just it just didn't it got off to a really bad start, which I think is going to hurt it in the long run. 
Um, mm-hmm. And so when I talked to Godenzi about it, it w- we didn't talk much about it, but um, he said that at Rome, he spoke with the players and they essentially agreed to table the issue until the end of the season, until after the ATP finals. So, um, so they're focusing on playing right now. And if I was the PTPA, I mean, there'd be two things I'd be doing is preparing a platform, you know, really clearly stated goals and aspirations and desires. And then two, they have to have, they have to have a, a vast majority of players on their side and especially the key ones. And I think that is, that likelihood has decreased because if you look at the new the makeup of the new player council, it's essentially, you know, anti PTPA mm-hmm. people, including two of the greatest tennis players ever, and one of the most popular ever uh, in yeah. Andy Murray. So they really uh, the ATP player council really kind of moved to strengthen itself. You know, it's almost completely anti PTPA, um, mm-hmm. and so you know they really got a battle on their hands to to continue to exist because if those top guys don't move to the ptpa side there's going to be a lot of followers that are just like you know what forget this yeah Um, it's all it's i was gonna say it's equally fascinating that they've added faa to that player council's row right it's a bridge to the next next generation generation. yeah and what you know you mentioned a couple of different things there that i think really do set a good uh you know uh set the scene for uh this discussion today because obviously gaudenzi and vashik pospisil you know the ptpa and this new atp strategic plan moving forward they were both in the works at the beginning of this year and of course to your point you know, as you mentioned for Vashik Pospisil, he is one of many players who has been vocal about the issues confronting tennis. And these aren't new issues, right? Things yeah, such as right. pay, uh, pay equity for <clears throat> players ranked outside the top 100. The idea of, as you mentioned, and this is a topic we've talked about before when you've come on this show, that it is the Grand Slams making the most money that, you know, pretty much if you're an ATP 250, you're going year to year. You better fill your gates yeah. because only 12% of your revenue is coming from TV deals. And obviously that makes it so difficult to sustain these sorts of events but to get to your uh, point on the PTPA and I completely agree with you and it is, it is worth reminding this is not an advocating or uh, you know us going against one group or the other to point out the fact that the PTPA you use the word rushed that's exactly it you should never be forming an organization before your platform is released before it's clear yeah. what your organization stands for and you know right. I, the people I happen to talk to are usually players ranked outside of the top 100 and the appetite for this organization is there particularly yeah. amongst the new wave of players those players 26 25 and younger who just are not happy with the status quo and you know I talked about this with Ben Rothenberg it's very eerily you know that you could there are eerie similarities between the politics of professional tennis and politics in nations across the world right now in that yeah. there are institutionalists and then there are just people who want to blow it all up and yeah. you know there are people who just say the current structures are are not capable of the reforms necessary for our sport to move into the future. That being said, you know, you, you use the term, you're right. You shouldn't just have a lawyer. You should have the PR firm. You should be ready to roll. How you launch this event that's called the Professional Tennis Players Association, not the Men's Tennis Players Association, the Professional Tennis Players Association, and you don't have a single, woman's, uh, a single woman involved in your organization when you're launching, I mean, 
that's malpractice. That that's yeah. just that that's atrocious. And so yeah. you know, again, I, the necessity of the moment. These, as you mentioned, the the Benoit pair eleven was what we called the story. Benoit <laughs> pair test positive. All these various people go into differing protocols. Obviously, Kiki Mladenovic gets to the point where she's complaining in the press that the New York health and state officials take notice. And you know, it was it was a blemish in what was otherwise obviously a really well executed three weeks in New York, but. You know, the formation of the PTPA, and I'm sorry for swearing, I try not to do this when you come on the show, but it was literally like, they're like, you know what, f*** it, let's start it now. It was like, now is the moment, this is our time, and and that just doesn't work. Right, right. No, it's it's, it's too important to to Mm -hmm. kind of flippantly do it, and and then the, this is not a normal moment in time, so that Mm -hmm. really, I think, should have been considered more. I mean, because it, it just, it just comes across is looking really ungrateful and they have legitimate issues. Like they, they are outmatched at the negotiating table and, and they need some sort of, they can't unionize. I don't think in most countries uh, that the ATP is operating in, but they need something akin, somebody akin to like a union head who is not um, caught up in tennis's, you know, uh, conflict of interest. I would say, I would say a sports business expert, a lawyer from outside of the tennis world who is familiar with tennis. Um, and they need somebody like that that can, that can lead them. Um, they probably, I, I think they've, you know, I think there are questions about the people they pick to represent them on the, on the ATB board. Um, you know, and so I, I just think they need more expertise and I don't think that's, I don't think that's uh, a, a bad or a weird request, but beyond the bet, the poor timing of it, you know, you had like, this was another thing that was weird to me was like, what was the alternative that they, Mm -hmm. that they had in mind? And so because they can't unionize, the ATP doesn't have to recognize them and could simply ignore them. Uh, And if they wanted to play hardball, I doubt they'll do that because they want to maintain some harmony and be able to work with them after the fact, but they could just ignore them. And so is the, in, in, in later interviews, um, I saw Vashik said that the PTPA essentially wanted to replace the player council within the ATP structure. And that's just like, yeah, ludicrous. Like, (laughs) why would the ATP ever agree to that? And so you had a situation that in pro sports is very unique. It has its negatives, but it definitely has its positives. Players are not even with what I would call management in almost any other sport in the world. And you see every, you know, couple of years you have uh, these labor situations with the NBA, NFL, major league baseball, NHL, MLS, and they're very contentious and it's labor versus management. And so if they pull out of this and if, if the players did get a, a um, majority and, you know, did get the critical mass, what do you think the tournaments would do? They do the exact same thing. They would pull out and then you have a labor management situation and then it gets even more contentious. So you didn't solve anything. You just made it, you just turned the heat up. Um, And so I I would say just quick, yeah, I was going to say quickly just to add to that because there's so many competing interests at stake and you're just inflaming the tensions between all of them. Right. And yeah, I mean, and then how, yeah, I mean, that would be really, really, confusing and complex but um mm-hmm. 
Yeah, I don't. I don't even know how that would work out because you, in other sports where you have labor and management, you don't have the um, tentacles reaching across the sport like you do in tennis. You know, from companies like IMG or, I mean, agencies that represent players and own tournaments. Um, it, it would be messy and weird. But another another thing that I found really unusual, and that I think was further evidence for this move being kind of short sighted, was. Um, Vashik and uh, uh, Novak, at, at least, if, if not the others, um, have told me, and then Gaudenzi told me that they were like good with this strategic plan that we're going to talk about later. Like they, they believe in it and they think it's good. So, so their issue is not with the leadership of the ATP, it's with the structure. And so, my question would be why would you pull out of the structure? to try to replace it when the only way you can replace it is with the uh, approval of the tour. So uh, it's, it's kind of hard to explain, but like they, they, they don't have an issue with, with leadership. So the issue is with the structure. So why not remain within the structure to try to replace it? Keep your seat at the table. Instead, they've, you know, flipped the table on its side and are like, we're only coming back to the table if you allow us to take the place of this body that already exists. I mean, it's just, uh, and it, 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 this is a weird thought process to me. No, I, I completely agree with you. You sort of alluded to it. Unionizing in tennis is so difficult because it's not a domestic sport. It's an international sport right. and laws are different throughout different countries. And so they won't be recognized in certain places. And, you know, we don't have to get into labor law specifics because, A, yeah. that's not my expertise. I'll have to bring out my father for that. But, you know, it's just, yeah, it's, there are a lot of vague platitudes that a lot of players can get behind that, in theory, the PTPA supports. Again, better pay for players with lower rankings, more opportunities for those lower-ranked players to perhaps increase their rankings. And as you mentioned, there are causes that clearly the PTPA plans on advocating for, but it's just... It, it's so sloppy. It's just like you, you yeah. can't afford to screw this up. And there are so many players who, again, are hungry for a, some sort of change because the constant push-pull between the ATP Player Council and all of the players on tour is the ATP tour really focuses on the top two, you know, not the challenger tour, really focuses on the top 100 players and ensuring they are well taken care of, ensuring once you're at the top of the game, you know, things look good for you. And, you know, that's the, or at least that would be the argument players who are unhappy with the current structure would make is that the ATP Player Council represents the best players. It doesn't represent all of the players. And, you know, obviously, as you mentioned, to have Federer, Nadal, now Andy Murray on the ATP Player Council, all established names, veterans with respected voices. That was an absolute power move by the Player Council members. And, you know, again, in the immediate end, one thing we know about tennis, there are leaks everywhere, right? This is not, if there's a a hurricane coming, you don't want to be in the tennis house because you're just going to get so wet. It's going to leak all over you. But, of course, you know, we now can get into uh, this new plan by the ATP, their new strategic plan moving forward. They obviously, you know, one of the big things, and this was probably my favorite line of the piece, and I know it's a very little thing. And, by the way, there are outstanding details in the piece. Everyone should go read. New ATP strategic plan focuses on unity. You can find it on sportsbusinessdaily.com or just go to Brett. uh, It's Brett Just One T, right? Uh, Just One T on Twitter. You can find the 
article, but my favorite uh, little tidbit from the beginning. The need for unity and greater alignment of interest within the sport is addressed 22 times in the first 68 pages of the actual plan. Now, you had the opportunity to review the ATP strategic plan, and the fact that they turned to unity right away, it just... It honestly makes me a little bit angry. It's just like, all right, oh, so you see these messages and you're like, we're just going to stretch unity, unity, unity across more levels. And I'm sure within the 92 pages, there are more specifics on how to get into that unity. But, you know, how much of the releasing do you think of the strategic plan right now is a response to get in front of the narrative of the PTPA to take control of this discussion of what the future of tennis looks like? Yeah, the creation of it is not connected to the PTPA. Like, Godenzi used this to get the job. So Mm -hmm. just to clear that up, because that was – it's too comprehensive, and it's honestly a very impressive uh, document. Like, it's a a really good deck. Um, But, yeah, I no, I think the release of it absolutely was probably sped up a little bit by that – and they said they were going to release it, I think, before the U.S. Open, but they were waiting to – they were making a video that, like, distilled it, uh, boiled it down uh, to, like, four minutes so that they could show it to the players and hopefully entice some of them to read it, <laughs> which I thought was <laughs> kind of kind of a funny uh, revelation of how they, you know, view uh, some of the players, you know, is, and, and is probably accurate, you know, that most of them are not going to – sit and read this thing like i like i did um but yeah no i i think it was definitely you know moved up um uh, to to get it out and and honestly if they they i i think it shows also they probably had no clue that the ptpa thing was coming down the pipe or not a not a good idea of when it was going to happen like i'm sure they knew about it probably didn't know when it was going to come to life uh, and so hadn't released that document yet because that would have been something that, you know, would have been good to put out in June or July when people maybe did have time to read it, you know? Yeah, put and, it out if, whenever it's ready. Yeah, yeah, that's a question. I, I don't see – they would never tell me exactly when it was ready or when it was <laughs> supposed to be released. I mean, they just wouldn't say that because they're trying to control the message. But, um, you know, because there's a lot in it that is encouraging, you know, if, if I'm involved in the tennis world, uh, there's a lot of talk about how to make more money and to flow it through the sport. And there's a lot of good ideas on there. I mean, you know, promoting players more, um, you know, uh, bigger bonus pools, uh, you know, things like that. Um, 50-50 prize money split, you know, which is complicated, but that's sort of the gist of it. Um, there, there's a lot in there for players that that's positive. Um Maybe not your guy, like ranked two hundred ninetieth, but um, but no, I I don't think there's any question that it, the ultimate release of it was was you know a quick response to that. And and again, like you look at the kind of fumbled launch of the PCPA, and then a week or so later, the ATP sends out this thing, and it's just like <laughs> you know, it's like the it's like the Death Star manual, you know, or whatever. I mean, you know, it's just. It just shows the the lack of organization that the that the PTPA had. I mean, they had they had. I would have loved to have seen the document that players signed. I mean, um, you know, I, I can't imagine it looked anything like this ninety two page thing that uh, 
the ATP was was sending around. No, I, I I imagine now the ball is in their court. By the way, and I do want to talk about some of the notable things that are not in this deal because I know you uh, again have talked uh, before. And for anyone who wants to read the details of this, again, it's in depth. You can go find it uh, the article on either Brett's Twitter page or on SportsBusinessDaily.com. And you know it is worth mentioning in the article. It says at the top, in no way it is related to the PTPA timing from Gaudenzi about the release of the plan. And as you mentioned, you know this was his pitch to get the job when the position open after Chris Kermode uh, was not going to be uh, stay on as president. And, you know, this is the expanded version of that pitch. And as you outline uh, in the uh, in the article, there are really two parts to this plan. Part one focused on four different initiatives. Uh, really, you know, the to try and, I believe, aggregate the data rights is one of the big things he wants to do uh, to try and grow uh, these sports, uh, to grow the revenue available into the sport. And, you know, you and this you say tennis commands just 1.3 of global media rights value despite being the world's fourth most popular sport and that's a very you know that's a very niche tidbit I suppose for us sports fans out there but when you say 1.3 of global media rights despite being the world's fourth most popular sport what does that mean in terms of is that an inefficiency from tennis they're not doing the most to capitalize yeah. capitalize on their popularity that there's more money on the table for them Definitely that underperformance. Yeah. Would be mm-hmm. the way to, to say that. And, and like, look, look at this year alone, you know, couldn't, you couldn't have fans at the majority of the events since March, um, that have been, or since August that have been held. Uh, and you know, you, you have these really weak TV contracts. And so that would have been a huge, um, help this year to have better TV deals, to, to have better streaming deals. Um, in a year where you couldn't have fans. I mean, look at the, you know, the NFL and basically all the major American sports leagues were able to, you know, do okay, even without fans because they have these really good um, broadcast deals. And so that's where tennis is. One thing this year really showed is that tennis is overly reliant on in-person revenue. And so that's um, ticketing, you know, and parking and hot dogs and, uh, wine coolers and things like that. Uh, and in-person sponsorship, like hospitality stuff is enormous in tennis, like way bigger than in probably any other sport except maybe golf. Um, and that's, <clears throat> you know, JP Morgan Chase hosting 6,000 clients uh, over two weeks at the U.S. Open. I mean, they're doing, they're whining and dining and impressing people. Mm-hmm. Uh, BNP Paribas Open, um, BNP Paribas is hosting like 2,000 clients. So, uh, these are like enormous events for them. Um, and that's a big reason that sponsors get into tennis. But what do you do when you can't have people at the event? So uh, the plan, the strategic plan really speaks to uh, or really co- ha- provides a lot of different alternative revenue streams that the sport's currently not um, getting anything or getting the most out of uh, and, and, media rights is absolutely probably right at the top. I mean, cause it's just, um, an area where tennis really has nowhere to go, but, but up. And so, mm-hmm. um, that, that was, yeah, that was a big, big part of it. I mean, there was a first, uh, probably like, I'm trying to think probably 20 pages or so were research that kind of were set was setting the table. Um, mm-hmm. and the counter to that tennis, uh, stat you had the 1.3% of the global media rights value is, American football, which 
uh, I would assume to include college and NFL, it's the 10th most popular sport in the world. You know, most of its fan base concentrated mm-hmm. in North America. Uh, and it gets 15% of the global media rights value, which is behind soccer. And there was a category for other that was 17%. But, you know, who knows how many sports were in there. Uh, it was the mm-hmm. second or third, you know, most um, media rights money was going to American football, even though it's only the 10th most popular sport. So that's a sport that's overperforming. If tennis could even get to average, you know, 5% or something like that, then, uh, I mean, imagine, you can imagine uh, how many dollars those percentage points equal. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and, you know, again, it's four-part. Let's focus in on phase one. Uh, you know, we talked about the part one of phase one, aggregating rights and centralizing services. And I am reading your words here, by the way, and they're beautifully written, so why would I use any other words? Uh, the ATP plans to combine all tournament media and data rights and consumer services. Media rights would be pooled with ATP media. Data rights with a new in-house creation called Tennis Data Innovations. I promise I, w- I, I will make everyone go read the article and not rip off the rest of the paragraphs here. But, you know, for people who are like, I don't really get it. What are media rights? What are data rights? Obviously, it deals with things such as TV contracts. But the hidden secret, something we've talked about before, the golden spoon that feeds the entire tennis world and in particular the futures, the challenger level events. Data rights equals I can sell that to DraftKings. I can sell that to gambling institutions. And that's the... I don't want to say it's a dirty secret because it's not really a secret. It's just not something that gets talked about as frequently. It's about better aggregating those rights so that you can sell them for more money, right? There was the billion-dollar hypothetical deal with IMG to sell the data rights. That never came to fruition. Uh, But that is what Gaudenzi is trying to do is to best pool those rights to make the largest sum of money. Right. And so TV is a good example. So right now the tennis – and a lot of this is to, if you can pull all these things together, and this is also, keep in mind, the ATP and the WTA, if they could also do this, uh, which is in the second part of the plan, but um, the more you can put it together, <clears throat> the easier it is for consumers, because all of this stuff is going to be in one place. Mm-hmm. And the thinking is the better deal you can get, you know, because you're, you're creating, um, critical mass you know so for an nfl broadcaster if they could get all of the nfl games they would pay you know an arm and a leg um but the nfl is smart and so they kind of cut their cut their stuff up Mm -hmm. um, to create demand but for sport like tennis if you could put all of the atp tour on one broadcaster in each of the countries they're in that would be better for fans and the atp should be able to command a better fee you know a bigger fee as it is right now, I mean, you've got the Masters 1000s are pulled together separately, uh, 500s are pulled together separately, and uh, only 18 of the 38 250s are pulled together. I mean, mm-hmm. answer honestly, who's really going to be that intrigued by buying less than half of the lowest level of tournaments? I mean, it's it's sort of a weird offering, you know? And so that pool has grown from 2017. It was only four tournaments. So it's grown a lot. I think a lot of tournaments are seeing the benefits of that. Um, but pooled rights could have a big impact on two fifties because that money trickles back down to them. You know, they get a cut of that. Uh, and so if you had all 38 together, um, that would be a better package. And then if you had all 64 or whatever, uh, the number is, um, ATP tournaments together, that'd be even better. 
So kind of you want to try to get that critical mass, um, and that's how media rights are, you know, can can become more valuable. Um, mm-hmm. It's also, uh, you know, kind of kind of easier for everybody to deal with. If you go to the NFL and you want to buy rights, you deal with the NFL. You know, you don't have to deal with each team mm-hmm. as opposed to no, tennis, I... where it's kind of all over the map. So yeah. Um, so that's that's one, you know, one benefit of that. And of course, when we say media rights, we're talking about the money that that the tournaments and the tour get for. Um, their their events being broadcast, um, mm-hmm. and the data rights, yeah, is really this this uh, it's really emerged in the last probably like five years. It's especially getting going as uh, as sports betting is is like really exploding around the globe. You know, it's had had its countries that it's always been kind of big in, but um, you know, it's, it's becoming more increasingly uh, legalized in the U.S. Um, there's you know, it's a major market, and so data rights would be like data companies want the most accurate uh, best data and the source of that is always going to be if you want the best ATP tour data the source of that is going to be the ATP tour um, mm-hmm. and so you know if you're able to get them data fast that you know everybody know is going to be right and people can gamble on you know knowing that uh, that data is accurate then they're going to pay a premium for that and so that that premium has been increasing as more people are getting interested in, in sports betting and as it's becoming more common and popular, especially, um, you know, in broadcasts and then through mobile apps and things like that. So data rights are enormous. Um, and, and then also when you talk about uh, centralizing all of that stuff, I mean, this kind of gets back to a point that God Denzi made um, when I talked to him like back in, I think it was June or July and that he wants the tennis fan to have, essentially like a one log on experience. So tennis is so everybody knows is so fractured. Um, you got to have, you know, multiple apps and, and, you know, this and that, like it's different websites, different everything, you know, um, you know, he could, he would love to see something where the WTA and ATP shared a website. Uh, and then behind the scenes, you know, this wouldn't really be fan facing, but to where they were, eliminate redundancies so they could have maybe like one social media team uh they could have one ticketing operation one you know whatever uh and and when you're combining all that data so you have the data that kind of goes to sports betting websites but then you also have the data that you get from anytime somebody buys a ticket you get a lot of information about them that's customer data that's extremely valuable because you use that to um, sell sponsorships you use that uh in a lot of different ways you use that to target ads to people. Um, and so if you have a better centralized pool of data about your customers, you know, you're going to be able to, um, interact with them more effectively. And so that is one of the biggest things around data right now is how to, uh, use it, uh, in a way that allows you to send, you know, ticket offers or reminders of who's playing, um, you know, in, in a way that, um, impacts people, you know, as opposed to them just like, mm-hmm. you know, ignoring it because it was just randomly thrown into their inbox. 
Mm -hmm. No, that's a really good point about the data rights, by the way, being the fact that as a consumer, if you're going to an event, you're also giving data to these tournaments. I didn't even think about that element as well. And, you know, you talk about the consolidation of media rights, of aggregating all this so that the ATP can be more efficient, I suppose, with the way they sell the product. Uh, One way perhaps that's manifesting itself already, uh, the announcement that Tennis Channel will be the sole carrier of all of the non-slam events on the ATP Tour in the United States starting at the beginning of 2021. And I'm just throwing this out there now uh, because I want to get ahead of the curve. And I've been like, oh, should I say this on the podcast? Should I not? I feel like Tennis Channel Red Zone is inevitable. Just one person who's on it all day long during all of these matches. The second a set gets to four all, you flip to that match. Oh, we have another set at four all. Let's go double box here. The point is I'm ready to make the call for Tennis Red Zone. But this idea of the ATP, the non-slam events, all being seen at one location, it's it, you can look at it two ways, right? That glass half full is, uh, to your point, okay, they are consolidating. It's all in one location. Glass half empty to be would be, why is ESPN making the decision to think? or what's the thinking behind their decision to say it's not worth it for us to carry any non-slam tennis event. I suppose you look at that decision in a vacuum. You think it's a net positive or a net negative for the ATP Tour in the United States from a broadcasting perspective? Positive. So Make the case. Yeah, I'm working on a story about this right now, actually. I'm going to talk to Ken Solomon on Friday. Yeah, but Gil didn't ask you that question, Gil. Um, yeah, no, Gil. I'm just kidding. <laughs> um, so I think it's a positive because my question would be is, you know, how how much is TV driving new fans to tennis? And I would say little, if any. Um, you know, I, I think that the – okay, like the ATP strategic plan uh, for sports fans, and, and it seemed like this was – uh, general sports, not just tennis. Sports fans, 55% of them are watching uh, live sports, but the other 45% is like highlights, um, non-live stuff, you know, like on-demand stuff, uh, off-the-field things, like, you know, little documentaries or whatever, um, and stuff like that. So highlights was like, I think highlights was like 30%. So to me, with tennis, those are the things that are driving fandom. You know, tennis is a star-driven sport. Stars are driving fandom. Uh, to me, somebody flipping to ESPN randomly and catching the finals of Cincinnati, I don't know that that's driving new fans. And so, again, you have a sport that is so divided. You have a you have a, a viewing experience that is so um, chopped up now. And I, I really feel this as a huge soccer fan. I mean, you got to have a bunch of apps and uh, and I don't root for ESPN, but personally I do um, because they're just hoovering up soccer rights and that five or six bucks a month is, is becoming better and better value, you know, cause there's more and more soccer in one place. So mm-hmm. if I was a tennis fan, like I would be ecstatic about this because if I'm a tennis fan in the U S I probably already watched tennis channel, you know, either streaming it or um, on cable and now even more of it, it's just going to be in the same place and I don't have to try to figure out, wait, is this afternoon session on um, NBC or is it on uh, Tennis Channel or, or where? You know, And so I think s- simplifying that is going to be really helpful to tennis. I think Tennis Channel has already like captured avid fans. 
Mm-hmm. And the way I think you get more fans is social media, promoting your stars, um, and things like that, as opposed to, you know, thinking that TV is going to make a big difference. Because, I mean, how many – this is a rhetorical question because I don't know the answer, <laughs> but how many new fans has ESPN's coverage driven over the years? Their coverage is great. It's They're really good at it. But mm-hmm. it's so random and it's so spread out that – you know, it's it, you can't imagine that it creates any habits for new fans. Um, whereas, you know, if 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 you're able to, if Naomi Osaka keeps breaking through and makes Sports Center, even if ESPN isn't showing tennis, or if she does something at the U.S. Open that they are showing, people are seeing that and saying, "Oh, who is this girl that keeps wearing the mask with the names of people that have died on?" You know, mm-hmm. go to her social media, discover she's a social media star. And then it goes from there. And then they accidentally see a retweet from Sitsipas and they're like, oh, who mm-hmm. is this really deep thinker from Greece? You know, and, and, and <laughs> can I just become... say that might be the, the kindest description of Stefano Sitsipas in podcast history of yeah. really deep thinker from Greece. I love that. That was tongue in cheek. But um, <laughs> but then maybe they're like, oh, you know, this guy is beautiful. <laughs> like, let me follow him, you know, and yeah. and and then it goes from there. That That's how tennis can really create new fans i think especially as they're they're young players coming up or social media natives like they they don't even have to fake it you know like they just they just live on social media like everybody does now um and so that to me that is the way that uh that you create new fans and it's not by tv so to me the the benefit is having all of this in one place to where i know where i can find it now that i'm a fan mm-hmm. yeah i mean Again, it's not to keep going into the politics of it all. It's like doubling down on the base. It's just like saying, hey, for tennis fans in America who know about Tennis Channel, who know where they want to find their tennis, it's all going to be in one location. The question is, you know, every time there's a lead-in from Cincinnati to a sports center, whether it's like an 8.30 p.m. or, you know, I think it was last year, right, the Kyrgios-Hachinov match where there was a little bit of drama at the end. Kyrgios, you know, breaking the racket, going off the court to destroy it and do people, you know, does Sports Center cover that going leading into Sports Center simply because they're coming from Cincinnati coverage? If they weren't coming directly from the Cincy courts to Sports Center, would that even get a notice on ESPN? Will it only be tweeners, you know, in the Sports Center top ten moving forward? That'll be the exposure for tennis. I don't know. Like it's a legitimate question, but you know, certainly I, I agree from a tennis fan's perspective, and obviously worth disclosing here as a member of the Tennis Channel Podcast Network work the expanded coverage Tennis Channel will be able to do with the fact that all tournaments are found on its channel, the fact that they're going to be able to have these desks on site and be able to do all these different things, uh, certainly it will enhance the tennis fan experience. The question is, will it be able to increase uh, the total amount of tennis fans? And I just don't think there's enough data yet for that to be known, right? Yeah, and I just don't, I don't know that TV does that for anything any sports now i'm I'm, yeah it could but i'm really not sure it does people find out about stuff through social media you know Mm -hmm. um people are gonna see gael monfils on twitch and say who's this guy you know or or see a clip of him you know absolutely slamming you know a, a, a shot at the net you know into the crowd or something and think oh that was cool he's athletic like fun to watch you know that i i just feel like I could be wrong, but my gut, you know, having 
followed sports uh, sports business for like a year and a half is that uh, this is not necessarily a negative thing. I, I think it's good in this current era of chaotic TV and, and streaming distribution um, to have all of one thing in one place or almost all of one thing in one place. And like you said, not that tennis channel is going to cover it better than ESPN, but they're going to cover it more. They're going to have, you know, more, uh, they definitely, I would say have more authority covering it. You know, they're, they're, they're there every week. Um, and you know, they're just going to be better at it for the avid fan. And so, and so the, the key for tennis, and this is always the case, regardless of whether it was on tennis channel or what channel is to promote stars and, and promote, you know, the interesting people on its tour, because that's, that's what is like going to power it to create new fans, you know, and to create interest because the sport is not changing dramatically. You know, you're not going to like, I mean, UTS might be, might capture a few fans, but I I can't imagine that's going to, too much you know and, and and then that's not even the same version of tennis that they would be seeing the rest of the year anyway so um i just think it's uh good to have it all in one place i mean i, I could be wrong but you know consider too they're they're on cable they're in 60 million households they say mm-hmm. um you know as is true tv and any of the other random channels that people mostly don't watch but you know you still have that possibility in the u.s of somebody stumbling upon a match, you know, and mm-hmm. potentially convincing them to become a fan. But, um, but I, I just think that, uh, you know, having it in one place is, is a good thing for tennis. I mean, think there's like, there's countries like Germany and Australia that have six and seven different broadcasters for tennis, um, in their country, uh, mm-hmm. you know, between the WTA, the different slams and the, uh, ATP and Davis cup and Fed cup and everything. So, you know, I think having it all on Tennis Channel, almost all of it on Tennis Channel, is a better thing than, you know, seven different um, platforms. Mm-hmm. No, I, I think, again, it's probably – first of all, I agree with a lot of your arguments. I think it's probably too soon to say. We'll see how Tennis Channel's ratings do. We'll see uh, if there is just a net increase in the – because uh, simply that's just the place to go for all of your tennis uh, desires as a tennis fan, I suppose, and hopefully there is. Um, but, you know, to sort of zoom through the rest of – Play, uh, phase one, and I think it's probably too soon to talk about phase two because whether they can get the WTA on board, whether they can get the Grand Slams, the ITFs, you know, go after the unity they talk about so frequently in the plan, probably too soon to tell. But the other pillars of phase one, a long term prize money formula that sees yearly increases for the players, emphasizing premium events and then longer tournament category terms, uh, you know, locking in agreements to try and uh, Improve, increase the events, uh, make them better and better year after year. You see all of these platitudes. These are, again, all things that have been discussed in tennis for a long time. What I don't see are some of the more, I suppose we'll call them progressive ideas out there in tennis. Things such as, you know, there's no discussion of a universal income for the players ranked, you know, outside the top 100, where it's depending on where you start, you're guaranteed this level of money. They don't really address uh, what are we going to do with the challengers? What are we going to do with the 
ITF? How can we improve the branding of those events? How can we ensure the, the players who are outside the top 100 but still spectacular talents themselves get the sort of notoriety that usually the 200th best, 200th best player in their craft is able to receive? I guess what I'm trying to say is, do you see a lane with this strategic plan? What it end up being? What it ended up looking like for the PTPA to come in and say, you know what, we like that plan, but I don't think it's enough because again, when you talk to players, the the whole foundation of support for the PTPA outside of you know Team Djokovic, Team Pospisil is a uh, team anti institution. Is this idea that you know again, it's the players outside the top one hundred who would like a bigger say, a bigger piece of the pie, of, you know, a seat at the table, and of course that's very easy for them, and they've been very vocal in asking for it. But there are still some openings, I suppose, uh, or at least I see in this long term plan for the PTPA to uh, capitalize on. Do you think that's fair? Yeah, I do think that's fair. The The gist of this plan is like Reaganomics. I mean, it's, it's yeah, take care seriously. of the, take care of the premium players and events and then we'll make more money and that'll trickle down. And then in, in America, we've seen that that absolutely doesn't work because it doesn't trickle down. The top people hang on to it, <laughs> but yeah. In tennis, uh, if you got more structure in place, you know, it's not necessarily a democracy completely. Um, you know, that, that could, in effect, work better. But, you know, another thing, I, I would have been shocked if there was some kind of universal income thing. But you don't see anything about, you know, we're going to increase um, first, second round uh, prize money. Uh, or we're going to, you know, invest more in challenger events. You, you don't see that. So um, it's definitely a trickle-down trickle down idea. I mean... The best example of that is, you know, uh, lengthening the Masters 1000s tournaments and putting 250s, six 250s in the second weeks of Masters 1000 tournaments. I mean, that is, if the hierarchy wasn't clear previously, I mean, that is a firm <laughs> reaffirmation <laughs> of, you know, what's important to the ATP and it's those nine biggest tournaments. Um, and the another thing I'm thinking on is the, you know, working on is the, how the two fifties will react to this because, you know, this is a tricky plan for them. I mean, they really take the brunt of the negative aspects of it. And there are um, ways to ameliorate that within the plan, you know, like subsidies and things like that. But that's essentially saying, you know, you know, don't worry about being profitable. We're just going to give you some money. And also like, there is no detail about how much the subsidy is. So, Mm -hmm. um, there, there is uh, not a major focus on the lower level, and their their idea is to focus on the premium product, which makes sense, but also, like you said, I think uh, leaves that lane open. Um, yeah. Another, if I can add in real fast, another like consistent theme throughout this thing was long term stability, mm-hmm. uh, which I think is something that tennis doesn't nece- necessarily have, and I think the the model for this is American professional sports, which doesn't have relegation, you know, like soccer. I mean, if you could, um, if soccer in the rest of the globe could do it over owners would never agree to relegation, uh, because it, you know, can dramatically crush the value of your, of your franchise, you know, in a, in, in a heartbeat. Um, and so American sports has stability, which leads to investment. You know, your team can suck, but they're not they're not going to lose the revenue that they get from being in 
MLB or NFL or whatever. And so tennis is trying to do that with its top events, give them stability. You know, there's no way because of this contract, there's no way we're going to drop this certain masters 1000 event to a 500 level, you know, um, and knowing that we're not going to do that, we expect you to invest in your facility and your tournament and make it better. And that I think is a, that is a good idea. Um, They're also, kind of addressing the revenue issues they've had this year. And another one of those efforts to kind of prop up the 250s is giving uh, equity in ATP media and tennis data innovations. ATP media is making a lot of money uh, since it started about 11 or 12 years ago. Mm-hmm. And giving um, the 250s uh, equity stake in that, even if it's um, – you know, not a huge stake uh, because the Masters 1000s um, own a majority of that along with ATP. Uh, there's still, that's going to be revenue that comes in whether they have the tournament or not. Um, and then Tennis Data Innovations is something they're working on building right now. And this is going to take care of their data rights and also that customer data um, that I was talking about earlier. And that's a new creation. And so again, that's um, going to create... Um, more stable revenue, you know, that's not dependent on fans showing up, um, which should help the 250s who, like you said, uh, you know, really would be hammered in a year like this. Um, they, I've heard the average um, yearly revenue for, for a 250 is like around 125 or 150,000. So, you know, that's not a, that's not a big, uh, that's, that's not a big profit uh, annually. So, so th- those kinds of things, I think, want to create stability in the sport, which will lead to investment, which you see in the U S you know, with, with the stadiums and, and all the investment that goes into uh, pro sports in the U S I think they, they want to try to mirror that in, in some ways. Mm-hmm. No, absolutely. And I mean, uh, it's going to be one of the big questions moving forward is how do these tournaments respond, especially for so many of these 250s who weren't able to have events this year. Some of them might be forced to go away. And so that's something we have talked about before. Will they be able to survive? Certainly, uh, they are looking at the idea of long-term long term stability right now, and uh, they seem quite fond of it. So, of course, uh, again, there's a, a, lot of, uh, a lot of talk. Uh, we have yet to see really action taken on many of these uh, platitudes, many of um, these platforms on this strategic outline. And again, to expect action to happen overnight, I don't think any of us uh, would expect that. But still, uh, it's a really fascinating time because obviously this year revealed a lot for the ATP for tennis in general uh, on, I suppose, the exposure they have, uh, the the things they need to do to solidify, as you mentioned, their long-term future. I guess as you're looking at the strategic plan anything we didn't mention that you would like to just pop in quickly is there any other detail that you think maybe might become crucial in these early phases of uh unveiling this plan yeah well so they were supposed to have it approved by the end of the year so seeing if that happens will be i think really important because you know the uh revised tournament calendar was supposed to take place in 2022 um Mm -hmm. you know I i don't know that any of this stuff would would necessarily be in effect next year but um, well, like tennis data innovations will be, but, um, yeah, it was supposed to be agreed upon by the end of the year. And so I would think the ATP finals will be important, uh, for the tour business wise, you know, not just to, to host that event and kind of, um, try to limp across the finish line, but, um, you know, there's some really important things to figure out if I'm a, 
if I'm a 250, like I need to know how much the subsidy is going to be. I mean, which tournaments are going to go in the, into that second week? Because that's, I mean, that is, if not a, not necessarily a death knell, but like that is, that was significantly change how your business operates. Um, and so there, there's a lot of questions to figure out. And uh, I, I, I would imagine the ATP finals is when a lot of that will be figured out. I don't know if they'll be able to meet in person, um, but it could be a really important Zoom call. So that, that's what I would yeah. keep an eye on is to see if, um, you know, if we can find out if uh, the plan gets passed for this year or if it's something they just have to kick down the road because you've got, you know, the pandemic is just making everything more difficult. And then you've got the PTPA that's sort of, uh, you know, kind of come out of nowhere. So um, still some obstacles to, to try and to get phase one uh, in action. Yeah, it's it's a fascinating time right now in the tennis world. Certainly, I completely agree with you. It's funny you you talk about two fifties coming in the second half of Masters. It was a lifetime ago, but uh, the Phoenix Challenger was supposed to be the second week of Indian Wells, right? And you saw the draw. I think these they played it in twenty nineteen. They were going to have it again in twenty twenty, and the draws are stacked because for all of these players who lose early in Indian Wells, want to get some matches in before Miami. That's what they turn to. The idea of having uh, a 250 event, you know, follow that up immediately. Just a lot of fascinating developments. And of course, again, these are all things you've written about on uh, Sports Business Journal, for Sports Business Journal. You can find it at sportsbusinessdaily.com. Uh, things such as the PTPA, things such as about the strategic plan, your conversations with Andrea Gaudenzi. Of course, you've also written some other really cool things that I just want to mention briefly. And the one, you know, I we were hoping to have you on the podcast a few weeks ago. Obviously, there has been so much going going on in the tennis world but at the beginning of September you wrote about how 50 years ago you know nine women really changed the yeah. future of women's sports forever uh, with the founding of the Virginia Wade Tour ultimately the WTA uh, just a brief synopsis for our listeners why they should absolutely go read the story of the original nine well it's told in their voices so I did an oral history which is cool uh, there's some interesting stuff in there including why they're all looking at the uh in a certain direction in that photo except for nancy ritchie um mm -hmm. and just you know about how that came about because that moment i think is uh criminally overlooked in uh sports history women's history american history uh you know global sports history you, you know you can cut it up any way you want but um that was just the courage it took at that time you know, when we're talking about the Mad Men era, you know, like women are supposed to look pretty and stay in the kitchen. I mean, the, the courage it took to risk their careers, um, most of them were young, you know, should have had a lot of tennis left in front of them. And uh, they risked it all to, to try to, you know, make a stand and, uh, you know, succeeded wildly. I mean, women's tennis is, is, you know, not, it's not even close to any other women's sport um, as far as no other women's sport is close to women's tennis as far as revenue and sponsorship and star power. And, you know, these, these women are why, I mean, there wasn't another major event like this in women's sports probably until the nineties, you know, when you had the formation of the WNBA and then the, the women's soccer team in the Olympics. So, I mean, they were at least two decades ahead of, you know, a trend that emerged from title nine. So um, they're just, they're, they're really cool women. It was really need to talk to them and uh and um it's i think worthy to read the story in their own voices um you know to to as they remember 
um, something that happened uh, 50 years ago, but the, the impacts of it are, are felt every day. Yeah, it's an outstanding piece. And again, as you mentioned, you get to hear from these players directly, which is something all of us can take away from, you know, learn so much from what they were going through, the fight they all had. And again, that piece called uh, 50 Years Ago, Nine Darling Tennis Players Changed the Course of Women's Sports Forever. You can find it on sportsbusinessdaily.com with the rest of your wonderful work, Brett. And you've alluded to a couple of things, but what pieces can we expect down the pipeline from you? Yeah, um... So, working on that, that tennis, that tennis channel say. thing. Yeah, I don't want to give away too much, but working on that tennis <laughs> channel story for sure. Because uh, I think um, New York Times wrote about it, and and um, I think we can go uh, more nerdy uh, uh-huh. and more niche, you know, than they than they would. Um, so mm-hmm. we're gonna do that and uh, try to really suss out, you know, how if if it is a good thing or not. I, I think it is, but you know, um, could be other viewpoints about that so um that that's the that's the one i'm immediately working on for sure yeah well we look forward of course to reading that and all of your work in one time just for our listeners in case for some reason they're not where can they follow everything you're doing yeah on twitter um brett just one t b r e t j u s t number one t um (laughs) i tweet all my stuff on there uh we have a pretty intense paywall but uh, most of the tennis stuff seems to be sneaking through it, so that's been that's been cool. I think the last four or five have been in front of the paywall, so um, mm-hmm. can read it there. And then I tweet, you know, I'll tweet a lot of stuff too, uh, understanding that not everybody can see uh, what I'm writing. So, yeah, mm-hmm. Twitter is where to where to find it. Yeah, hey, people, good journalism costs money. Uh, that's just the reality of it. Also, you know, go behind the paywall if sports business is something you are interested in. I promise the Sports Business Journal is for you and something that is always for our Crack Rackets fans, uh, something I know they always enjoy, a Brett McCormick appearance on the show. So, Brett, thank you so much for chatting with us this morning, obviously. Uh, wish, hoping you and your family stay safe and healthy when till whenever we get through this crisis and obviously looking forward to whatever you write next so you know expect a text on your phone and i'm sure the next 30 minutes <laughs> right well thanks as always for having me i always enjoy doing it yeah take care brett all right see you man It's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price. Priceline. Hope all of you enjoyed my conversation with Brett McCormick. Of course, again, please be sure to go check out his work at Sports Business Journal. Yes, some of that comes behind the paywall, but good journalism costs money, and that is what the team at Sports Business Journal is doing. It's very niche, uh, but if you are into the, uh, the uh, I suppose, the weeds, the intricacies, that's the word I was looking for, of uh, the business of sports, that is absolutely the resource for you. And again, a huge thank you to Brett for taking the time to chat with us 
If you have missed any of our content here at Crack Rackets, you want to hear my conversation with Ben Rothenberg, where we talk about, of course, the biggest storylines here down the stretch of this 2020 season. You want to hear recaps of all the action going on, of the events on tour. This week, we're in Antwerp, Cologne, and Ostrava. Uh, of course, that would be on the Mini Break podcast. You want to read some of our written articles, our YouTube content. You can find all of it on our website, CrackRackets.com. Of course, if you need the more immediate updates, Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, YouTube, we are at CrackRackets. You want to message me directly, I'm at GreatShotPod. Shout out, as always, to our super producers, Max Slater and Daniel Westa, for the of an editing job they do day in, day out. Shout out, of course, to our friends at DraftKings as well. If you are not already, please be sure to play along with us by going to dkng.co slash cracked open. But with that in mind, for my wonderful guest, Brett McCormick, our super producers, Max Flegner, Daniel Westoff, our friends at DraftKings, and all of us here at both Cracked Rackets and the Tennis Channel Podcast Network, I'm your host, Alex Kresk, and you know what we say. Hey, great shot, and we'll see you all next time. Thanks, everyone. Thanks, everyone.